Hello. How's that? No? All right, I'm going to put the pull pick mine in. All right. No problems. God is still good. It's just a microphone, right? All right. So to all of our guests, I'd like to welcome you here this morning. God is good to us, even though the electronics don't want to agree. Nevertheless, God's word can still be preached without them, right? All right. So um, normally we have been, as a church, we have been working through, uh, preaching through the book of Acts. But as you can see from the handout today, we are going to be in Acts chapter 10, dealing with the topic of baptism. So for, and the reason that we're taking a little deviation here today is because that because the pastors have we as pastors, we have suggested some amendments to the church's constitution and bylaws. And one of the amendments that we suggested was about the subject of baptism. So as it currently states, the uh, the church's constitution says we believe that the local church is a company of those who show evidence of regeneration and have been baptized by immer or, and, and has been baptized as believers by immersion. That's what it currently says. So we propose the amendment to change and read this. We believe that the local church is a company of those who show evidence of regeneration and have been baptized as believers by immersion. The pastors reserve the right to consider a believer's baptism by pouring or sprinkling as irregular but valid on an, on an exception basis. So that's the change we're proposing that we ought to make. So the reason for this amendment, the reason why we feel like we should make this change is because we don't want to violate the conscience of a believer who is convinced that they have already been baptized at their conversion. Right. We believe that we do believe that immersion is the proper form of baptism. But in cases of necessity, pouring or sprinkling may be acceptable. Right. In other words, we believe baptism by immersion is proper. And sprinkling and pouring is irregular, but they can in some cases still be valid. Does that make sense to you? OK, hopefully it will by the time we get to the end of the sermon. Got kind of quiet this morning. So. That being the case, before we want make any changes, we want we think it only think it proper to preach and teach on these subjects before we unilaterally make any changes as pastors. So with that, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, we pray that you would incline our hearts to hear your testimonies. Pray, God, that you would focus our attention on you, O oh Lord. And destroy everything in us that would oppose such a focus. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Unite all of our hearts to fear you and captivate us all with who you are. Lord, we need your help this morning to be, sat to be satisfied with your steadfast love. We beg you, O oh God, to press on our hearts the fact that your covenant love has been poured out on your church through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Family, 
I want you to use your holy imagination with me this morning for a moment. Imagine a passionate football fan. We're going to call her, her name is Sarah. If your name is Sarah, I apologize. Just a coincidence. Sarah has an unmatched, unwavering love for the Dallas Cowboys. Her bedroom is a shrine full of Dallas Cowboy collectibles. Game day is like a sacred ritual in her household. And despite the fact that she lives hundreds of miles away from Dallas, Sarah feels an unbreakable connection to the Dallas Cowboys. And one day, Sarah decides to take her passion to another level. And without any official invitation or endorsement from the Cowboys, Sarah boldly decides to declare herself a member of the Dallas Cowboy organization, okay? She starts to wear Dallas Cowboy jerseys. She updates her social media uh, accounts, proclaiming her affiliation with the team, and she even tries to attend the games as if she's a bona fide member of this organization. And as you can imagine, all of her actions will raise some eyebrows with, by the, with the people around her. Because people might ask her some questions like, did the Cowboys hire you? Or invite you to be a part of the team? And Sarah confidently says, no, but I consider myself a member. And I'm committed. And that's all that really matters. So now while Sarah's enthusiasm is commendable, there's a fundamental problem with this situation and her self-proclaimed membership. And that's the acknowledgement and the confirmation from the Dallas Cowboy organization. Being a passionate fan is one thing, but officially joining the ranks of this organization requires recognition from the organization. So in a similar way, when we talk about baptism, we find that baptism is not a self-proclaimed, one-sided act of a Christian alone, but the church has an essential and indispensable role to play in every baptism. Amen? Okay, so baptism is not simply just a personal act. And baptism is not about a person de simply declaring their belief in Jesus Christ. Rather, baptism is an act of an individual and the act of a church. Okay, this bears repeating. I'm going to say this again. Baptism is an act of both the church and an individual. And in the church's act in baptizing, it, the church is affirming a person's faith, and the church is accepting this individual into its ranks, right? So as we look at Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 48, our goal this morning is to convince believers from the word of God of the church's role, the church's responsibility, and the church's response as it relates to baptism. So here in Acts Chapter 10, verses 34 through 48, the Lord reveals to us the three-part duty of the church as it relates to baptism. In verses 36 through 44, we see Peter's preaching. Peter's preaching, 
which reveals the church's responsibility before baptism. In verses 45 through 47, you see Peter's question, Peter's question, which implies the church's role in baptism. And then in verse 48, we see the people's request and the church's response after baptism. So the Lord is good to his people. Amen. Amen. And he has not left us in the dark to speculate about how we should understand the subject of baptism. This passage of scripture was inspired by the spirit of God to help correct our tendency to see baptism and our faith as personal, individual, and completely disconnected away from the church. That's the purpose. Do you understand? Okay, listen. So before we get into the passage this morning, we need to look at the setting and the context of the story because it adds some depth to the story that helps us better understand what's going on. So in Acts 10, we're in Acts 10, verses 34 through 48, this, this is unfolding in Cornelius' house. This is happening in a man's name's Cornelius' house. So in Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1, the Bible tells us that Cornelius, he is a centurion in the Italian cohort. The Bible calls Cornelius a devout man of God who feared the Lord with all his household. And then one day Cornelius was praying and he has his vision. And in the vision, an angel of the Lord commands Cornelius to send men to Joppa and bring Peter back to his house in Caesarea. Okay, and Cornelius obeys. Meanwhile, while uh, Cornelius's men are on their way to Joppa to find Peter, Peter has his own vision from the Lord. And the Lord, in Peter's vision, he presents a variety of these unclean, common animals, urging Peter to eat these animals. And initially, Peter is resistant to do that. And Peter learns through this vision that no person should be deemed common or unclean. Okay? So when Peter arrives at Cornelius' house, he says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me I should not call any person common or unclean. And then in Acts 10, verse 35, Peter's statement It sets the stage for us for how we're supposed to understand the church's role in baptism. Look at verse look at verse 35. Verse 35, Peter says this. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, Peter's statement What it does, it establishes a foundational principle for us. This is an impartial extension of God's grace to every kind of person. It's a universal invitation and an open door policy extended to the entire world. With a small, tiny little caveat. Anyone who fears God. Okay? So it's within this context that we understand the church's role as it relates to baptism. So it's the church that confirms 
if the caveat has actually been fearing God. So while grace is impartial and open to anyone, the church has the role and the responsibility of confirming as best as the church can that those who the church baptizes do so with the fear of God in their hearts. Does that make sense to you? That's the church's role and the church's responsibility is to, bat, to be as best as the church can to baptize those that have the fear of God in their hearts. Okay? So, therefore, again, baptism is not simply a personal act that you do on your own, nor should it be taken lightly. Baptism is the response to God's impartial gospel invitation. Baptism is a public declaration of commitment to Jesus Christ and a commitment to his church. I'm going to say that again. It's a public declaration of commitment to Jesus Christ and a public declaration of commitment to his church. That's what the individual is saying when the individual is being baptized. And also, baptism is the church's public affirmation that this person, as best as we can tell, fears the Lord. And they did what is right by repenting and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. That makes sense to you? This is what baptism is. Now, having seen this, this foundational principle, we need to take a look at the church's role in confirming that the fear of God is in those who seek baptism. Baptism. So Peter's, uh, this foundational principle that we just talked about here, should lead us to understand and to recognize that before we baptize anybody, the church has the responsibility to preach the gospel to them before we baptize them. Okay? So we need to do this to ensure that individuals seeking baptism actually fear God. Right? So this is our first point. Look at point number one on your handout. Peter's preaching. Peter's preaching. The church's responsibility before baptism. Look at, we're in verse 36. I'm going to read it again. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one who was appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives 
forgiveness of sin through his name. So we closely examine Peter's preaching here. We see that Peter's sermon is a summary of the historical events of Jesus's life together with an explanation of what these events mean. So in other words, in uh, Peter's sermon, his sermon, he tells the people who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what it all means for us. Okay, so Peter, in his sermon, he presents this threefold testimony about the life of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And this threefold testimony shows that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the long-awaited Old Testament Messiah. The three pieces of evidence that, G, that, that Peter uses to testify about the identity of the man, Jesus of Nazareth, as Messiah is, number one, miraculous acts. Number two, divinely appointed eyewitness testimony. And number three, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And all of these pieces of evidence work together to prove that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the promised king who would sit on the throne of David forever and liberate his people from their sin. Okay? So, first, the miraculous acts. The miraculous acts. Look at verse 38. Peter tells the listener that Jesus was anointed by God both with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then he went around various parts of Israel doing good and healing those oppressed by the devil. And then at the end of verse 38, he explains why Jesus was able to do these things, do these miracles. It was because God himself was with him. All right. Next, you have this divinely appointed eyewitness testimony. Look at verse 39. Peter says that he and the people who came with him to Cornelius' house, that they were eyewitnesses to what Jesus did in Israel and that they were eyewitnesses to the fact that they, the Jews, put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised them on the third day, right? And Peter, along with these other eyewitnesses, they, were, they saw and they understood that God made Jesus appear, not to everybody, not to everybody, but to those who God himself chose to be eyewitnesses. And they ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That's so you can know that it was a real resurrection. He was in a real body. Okay? This is divinely, eyewitness, divinely appointed eyewitness testimony. And then the third piece of evidence that proves that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 43. Verse 43 says... Or Peter says in verse 43 that to him, all the prophets bear witness. In other words, what he's saying is that all of the words of the Old Testament prophets provide evidence or testimony about the fact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Messiah. Okay. Every Old Testament prophet affirms the truth that the man from Nazareth, Jesus, Mary's boy, is in fact 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? And every prophet bears witness either verbally or in writing or through actions that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the one that they hung on a tree and who resurrected after three days, this is the one in whom everyone must believe if they expect to receive the forgiveness of sin through his name. He's the one, right? So again, we have in Peter preaching the gospel, we have this threefold biblical testimony of miraculous acts, divinely appointed eyewitness testimony, and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that all prove together that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one through whom the forgiveness of sins are granted. Okay? I want you to look at the text again because I want you to notice something. Peter, before he even mentions baptizing anybody, he preaches about Jesus and the forgiveness of sin. Right? Family, since baptism is the church's public declaration that this person fears God and has done what is right in God's eyes, then common sense would dictate they, they have to hear about this God first. That makes sense to you? You can't fear a God that you never heard about, right? It's impossible for anyone to fear about a God that they never heard about. So this is the same argument that the Apostle Paul is making in Romans chapter 10, at verse 12, when he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the, for the Lord is the Lord of all, uh, bestowing riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So just like Peter, he gives this universal invitation to all people, regardless of their background. And then he says the same thing. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Right? A person cannot fear God, repent of sin, and trust Christ for their salvation if they've never heard of God, the repentance of sin, and trusting in Christ. Okay? This is why, as it relates to baptism, the very first duty of the church is to preach the gospel. Because a person will never turn to Christ for salvation if they don't know they need to be saved. I got a little test for you. Walk up to somebody tomorrow on the street and say, I got the cure to your illness. What do you think they're going to say to you? What are you talking about? I'm not sick. Right? They're not taking your illness. They're not taking your cure if they don't know they're sick. Right? So it demand, in order for a person to fear God, it demands that they hear about this God first. Right? So what this means for us as a church at First Baptist Church of the Lake, Lakes is simply this. Okay? The gospel must be preached. The gospel must be heard. And the gospel must be believed before any person is ever considered for baptism. Okay? So that means for the pastors, our primary responsibility is to ensure 
that the gospel is consistently preached from this pulpit, right? We are duty bound. The pastors are duty bound by God to preach the gospel in season and out, right? So when the people, pastors, I'm talking to y'all right now. This is for us. Listen, listen to me. When the people start demanding signs and the Greeks start to demand wisdom, we have to preach Christ and him crucified. Amen, brothers? So should a person need some godly counsel or some wisdom? We must counsel them in the wisdom of Christ. If a sister needs rebuke, we have to warn her in the love of Christ. If a brother needs encouragement or exhortation, we must motivate him for the glory of Christ. Brothers, we cannot get entangled in civilian affairs, right? We have to expend all of our energy and we have to struggle with all of our might to lead these people to Christ more and more and more. We must help them kill their sins and crush their idols, not so that our jobs can be easier, but so that they can be closer to Jesus. Now, it's going to definitely make our job easier, praise God. Okay, but that should not be our primary motivation. It should be so that you could be closer to Jesus. Right. And we have to do this so that they can cultivate a greater affection for the Lord and so that they can walk closer to their savior, no matter what they demand. Amen, brothers. Listen, this is what this means for y'all, the rest of the church. Okay, expects the gospel to be preached consistently so our job is to preach it consistently your job is to expect to hear it preached consistently right so since it's the pastor's primary responsibility to consistently preach the gospel whenever you engage us expect to hear what the gospel that was y'all are paying attention okay listen so that means whenever you approach us for marriage counseling, or you need rebuke, or some sort of counsel, or you find yourself in a hospital bed sick, battling an illness, you have to recognize that our primary objective extends beyond your immediate concerns that you're having at the moment. In marriage counseling, our aim is not just to fix your marriage and your relationship with your spouse. Our aim is to guide you closer to Christ in that marriage counseling, right? In the same way, if we are addressing some health issues and you find yourself in a hospital bed, our foremost concern is not your physical well-being, but your spiritual well-being and the condition of your soul before the Lord Jesus Christ. So you should expect us to help you with your physical needs, but we're going to talk to you about the disposition of your soul in case you don't leave this hospital. You understand that? You have to expect that from us. Okay? If we recognize as elders and pastors that you have an idol, understand we want to help you crush that idol. We want to help you remove and destroy anything that stands between you and your Lord and Savior. But we also understand that as soon as we do it, you are coming for our throats. Let me, let me, let me explain to you what I mean. We understand this is our jobs. 
to help you crush these idols. But you don't always want us to do that. Right? You don't always, because you don't always get your security from Jesus. Sometimes you get your security from other stuff. And so when we recognize that, we're duty bound to help you destroy and tear those idols down. But we're also not stupid. We know when you don't want to let them go, you're going to try to shank us. Okay? Nevertheless, brothers, we're duty bound to help them get closer to Christ, regardless of their response. Amen? So in every interaction, Christ and his gospel remain, is going to remain the central focus of the elders and you as the people in the church should expect that because that's going to influence our counsel and all of the care that we provide for you. Amen? So to the unbelievers in here today, our goal is not simply to just baptize people. Okay? We're not concerned with just sending more numbers. Okay? Before we even consider baptizing anyone, we have a duty as a church to be certain that you've heard the gospel preached. Before we baptize you, we have a duty to be certain that you heard it and that you understood it and that you know that one day God is going to judge all sin. Okay? And that you will have to give an account to him for every idle word and evil, wicked thought and every sinful deed that you've ever done. And none of your good deeds, none of your good deeds, the love of your family, the help that you gave your neighbors, none of those things can pay the cost for your sin. Only Jesus Christ can pay the cost for your sin. Right? And we have a duty as a church to be certain that you believe that Jesus suffered, that he was crucified, that he died, that he was resurrected on the third day for the forgiveness of sin. And that means that the penalty for every lie you ever told, for every wicked, evil desire that you've ever had, for every murder that you've ever committed, the, the, the ones in your hearts that you committed, the, uh, the abortions that you had and facilitated and paid for, they were all paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. If you don't understand that, we cannot baptize you. Do you understand that? We cannot, we have a duty to know. We have a duty to discern as best as we can as a church. Do you believe and understand these things? Right? We have to stand before God for that. So, just like Peter preached the gospel before he baptized anybody, it's the church's responsibility to preach the gospel before we baptize anyone. And if you look at verses 44 through 47, you will see this very, very interesting question from Peter that reveals the church's second duty as it relates to baptism. We're on point number two. If you got your handouts, we're on point number two. Peter's question, the church's role in baptism. I'm in verse 44. I'm going to start reading at verse 44. It says this. While Peter was still saying these things, 
the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So Peter is preaching the gospel. And during the preaching of his sermon, the Bible says the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Then men came from the men who came from Joppa with Peter, who were called the circumcised. They were stunned and amazed, the Bible says. Why are they amazed? Well, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So how do they know that the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles? Because the Bible says that they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, I have to take a little detour here and explain something. So we must understand exactly what's going on here before we get into Peter's question on the subject of baptism, because I don't want anyone present to get the impression that the evidence of a person having received the Holy Spirit today is speaking in tongues. All right. So I got to take a little detour. So first, you have to remember what the context of this passage is. Okay. The immediate context is that Peter had just had a vision from God at the beginning of chapter 10 or in the middle of chapter 10 about not calling non-Jews common or unclean. And if you remember, we read it in verse 28. It says, you yourself know how it's unlawful, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with uh, to or visit to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So this is why these men who came with Joppa, this is why they were amazed, because they're realizing for the first time that God's covenant promises are not just for Israel, but it's for the entire Gentile world. The promises of the new covenant are going global. Okay? That's the context. You have to remember this. Okay? Then a second broader context is the entire book of Acts. Okay? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ says this before he ascends. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and all of the earth and to the end of the earth and to the end of the earth. Oh, uh, I think King James says to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. Okay. This is, and then after that, in Acts 1, the Bible says that after he said these things, he was lifted up and a cloud took him up out of their sights. This is what we know as the ascension, right? So we know that after Jesus ascends, he sat down at the right hand of the Father as the exalted, promised Messiah, okay? And in Acts 2, verse 32, at Pentecost is another time when people are speaking in tongues, right? And Peter's explaining very clearly what's happening, okay? About the speaking in tongues in, in, in Jerusalem. And this is the explanation that he gives. He says this, he says, this Jesus God raised up and of that, we are all 
witnesses. That is that word again, witnesses, okay? Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the, promised Holy, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So look, so Jesus ascends. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. He receives from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and then he pours it out at Pentecost. You understand that? Now, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, listen to me closely here. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a work of the risen Christ. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a messianic, salvific work of the exalted king of the universe. Do you understand that? So what that means is this. You must see the events and acts of people being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues as messianic events. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts is a work of our risen Messiah on par with the virgin birth, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Hold on. Y'all supposed to be having an aha moment right now. Listen. His sacrifice was once and for all. Right? You don't need another sacrifice for your salvation to be effective. You only need one. Right? Uh, his sinless life. He lived it one time. You don't need anybody else to come and live a sinless life for you to be saved. Because the Savior did it. Amen? His resurrection is a one-time historical event. We don't need another resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. In the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a work of the resurrected Savior, and it only needs to happen one time. Okay? So, you might be asking yourself a question, and it's probably a really good one. Why do we see multiple and numerous occasions of people in Acts speaking in tongues? That's a great question. If it only happened one time, why do we see it a bunch of times in Acts? It's a great question. Jesus explained it to us. He explained it to the disciples in Acts 1.8. He told us exactly what it was going to look like when he starts to pour out the Holy Spirit. As the exalted one, he would pour out the Spirit, and he said it would begin in Jerusalem, then into Judea and Samaria, and then into the outer parts of the earth, right? And he said Jesus would, they would be there with him. Now, if you go read the book of Acts as a, as in succession, like it's, like it's a story, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see that the apostles went and they preached, and they were being witnesses. And they, first they preached in Jerusalem to the Jewish community, in Judea, in Acts 2. And the, the Spirit fell, people spoke in tongues. And then the next time you see it is to the Samaritan community after Stephen is killed in Acts 8. And then finally to the entire Gentile world here at Cornelius' house in Caesarea in Acts 10. Let me, let me I'm going to illustrate it for you. I got a cup here. 
I'll put this cup here. The sun sits down. Wait, that's my left side. The sits down at the right hand of the Father, and he starts to pour out the Holy Spirit. And now, if, I'm, if he's pouring and the cup fills up, it's going to overflow onto the pulpit. And then it's going to go onto the stage. And then it's going to go out onto the floor. But I'm only pouring one time. What you're seeing in Acts is the different stages of this one-time event. That's what's going on right there. Does that make sense to you? So when we read about individuals in Acts speaking in tongues, you have to understand what that is. It's a finger pointing to the fact that Jesus is Messiah. And that his work as Messiah only needs to be accomplished one time for it to be effective and efficacious for us today. Right? We never have to see another person ever in life speaking in tongues ever for God to save anybody. Right? The Holy Spirit falling on people in the book of Acts is a clear affirmation from God to the apostles signaling that the Gentiles will be fully included in the blessings of the new covenant. That's what's going on. That is what's going on here. Okay? And his outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's validating the statement that Peter made in verse 35 when he said that God shows no partiality. So he says God shows no partiality. Oh, look, Gentiles are filled with the Spirit the exact same way we were. That's a, a fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel 2. You only have to fulfill messianic prophecies one time for them to be fulfilled, family. Amen? Okay, so now we can look at Peter's question and see how it relates to baptism. We're in Acts 10.44. I'll read it again. When Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among, I'm sorry, and the believer, believers from among the crucified who had, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So once again, the people in Cornelius' house, they heard the gospel. The Spirit, of the, the Spirit of God was poured out on them. The Jewish believers, the circumcised believers, were amazed and stunned that God was showing this kind of impartial grace even to Gentiles. And then Peter asked, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Now, Peter's question is very interesting and it's full of implications for the church. First, Peter's question highlights that the church has the responsibility to baptize those who demonstrate evidence of having received the Holy Spirit. Okay? If you look closely at Peter's question, it is apparent that he's asking a rhetorical question. Right? The wording of this question ex uh, suggests that he expects a negative answer. 
And so by phrasing his question in this way, Peter is pointing out the obvious and he's highlighting a self-evident truth and that he expects the Christians that are with him to agree with him. Okay, essentially what Peter is implying in his question is that refusing baptism to these individuals would be inappropriate and be working against the evident work of the Holy Spirit in these people. So why is that? Peter clarifies in verse in the second half of verse 47 when he says they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So look at this, family. I want you to see this. Peter's question is directed at the other believers that are present. Right? You see that? It's that he's talking to the other believers that are present. This is emphasizing that the church has the responsibility, the responsibility to baptize people who demonstrate evidence of having received the Holy Spirit. Right? It implies that it would be wrong for us to deny baptism to any true believer who has shown, as far as we can tell, a genuine fear of God. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so Peter assumes that baptism, with this question, Peter's question, it assumes that baptism is an essential right for entrance into the community of believers, into the church. Right. So the question, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, indicates that baptism is a natural and necessary response of the church to the Gentile reception of the Holy Spirit. Right. And it suggests that baptism is a visible and meaningful expression of their conversion and their initiation into the people of God, into the church. Okay, so Peter question also implies that baptism serves as an act of identification for the church. Okay, so by receiving baptism, the Gentiles are publicly declaring their faith and they are aligning themselves with the teaching of Jesus and publicly declaring to become a part of this larger body. Okay. And this question reinforces the idea that baptism plays a crucial role in unifying believers together in a church. Okay? So, here's another implication. Peter's question, it implies that the church also has the responsibility to withhold baptism from anyone who does not show evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit. Okay? So it's only because people have demonstrated evidence of fearing God. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's only because people have shown evidence of fearing God that they should be baptized. Okay, which means if they don't demonstrate evidence of believing God, the church has the responsibility to deny them baptism. That makes sense to you? Okay, so I understand that this passage don't exactly say that, but I have to prove it from the text, right? Listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He's rebuking the church at Corinth for tolerating 
unrepentant sexual sin, right? And Paul's argument, what it's doing, it emphasizes that for the sake of the sinner's soul and the purity of the church, the church must exercise its responsibility and revoke this man's membership. It makes sense to you? Then in Acts 9.26, Acts 9.26, here's what the word of God says. It says, and when he, this is Paul we're talking about. Acts 9.26 is talking about Paul. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So when in, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So Peter's persecuting the church on the road to Damascus. The resurrected Lord appears to Paul. He was converted. And then the Bible says in Acts 9.26, he goes to Jerusalem to try to join himself to the, to the disciples in Jerusalem. And they said, no. We don't know if you are one of us. Right? That's what it says, right? Okay? So, it's only because of Barnabas' testimony and Paul's preaching that the church becomes convinced of his genuine conversion. Right? And this illustrates that the church in Jerusalem took the responsibility to deny fellowship until there was evidence of repentance and faith and fear of God. And once they were satisfied, they allowed Paul to join, to join the disciples and actively participate in the life of the church. So these passages highlight examples where the church guided, is guided by a responsibility to safeguard the church and care for the spiritual well-being of this individual, they have to exercise the right to deny fellowship because we don't want to give people the false impression that they're saved when they're not. Amen? Amen. You don't want people going around believing that they're saved when they're on their way to hell. That is wrong. You should never do that to anybody. Amen. Right? So I learned a new phrase from one of my, Sp from my Spanish brothers. It's, Al pan pan, al vino vino. Right? Amen. Right. Call wine wine and bread bread. It means call it like you see it. If that person's not a believer, you should not give them the false impression that they're a believer. Their soul is at stake. That is evil and wrong for us to do that. Amen? So, another reason why, as a church, we don't have, we have the responsibility to ensure that people actually have the fear of God before we baptize. That is our role and responsibility. So with that, we see this, these massive implications here of uh, Peter's question in verse 47 and how Peter's question reveals what the church's role and responsibility is in baptism. Now, on to the third and final point, we see a request from the people that shows the church's response after, after baptism. Look at verse 48, verse 48. 
And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So Peter issues a clear command for those who heard the gospel, preached, and then showed evidence of having received the Holy Spirit. He orders them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And in response, those who were baptized, they requested that Peter remain with them for some time, right? So the newly baptized individuals are now members of the church. They are full members of the household of faith, and they have a desire for further connection and fellowship with Peter. So all of this indicates that these people, these new Christians, these new members of the church, they recognize the importance of continued fellowship post-baptism. Okay? They did not want to simply be baptized and then be left alone. For them, baptism was not simply just checking a box or performing a religious duty so that they could be right with God. Their request is actually the flip side of Jesus' command in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, that says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, well, so if Jesus is commanded, is commanding the disciples to go and baptize and to teach those disciples that you baptize to observe his commandments, then it goes without saying that those who are baptized must submit to being taught. Amen? Okay? So in other words, Jesus' command in the Great Commission doesn't conclude with baptism. Okay? That's, our job is not to just baptize. The church's responsibility towards a believer extends beyond the baptism waters. The church must help everyone that it baptizes to walk in obedience with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it seems that these new believers in Cornelius' house, they understood this, that they had to be taught. They needed to fellowship with the church. So family, it's, it's the only fitting response of the church is to remain connected to the people that it baptizes. We have a duty to every person that we baptize to assist them to faithfully walk with the Lord in obedience. When we baptize somebody in this church, we are collectively making a public declaration to care for that person's soul. We are making a public declaration to care for that person's physical and spiritual well-being. And this responsibility is not just solely on the pastors, but it's encompassing the entire church. Right. So remember, Peter's question that he asked in verse 47, he was asking to the other believers around him. He didn't make a unilateral decision as an apostle. He wasn't making a unilateral decision as an apostle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote to the entire church at Corinth, not just the elders. And in Acts 9.26 illustrates that it was the disciples, not the elders, who initially dis den denied Paul's interest into the church at Jerusalem. So family, 
we bear a collective responsibility as a local church, right, to assist anyone that we accepted into membership through baptism in their walk with God, right? This is the reason why the pastors do not have the right to excommunicate or to add people in the church without your consent. We don't have the right to do that because adding someone to the church involves a commitment from the entire congregation. You have a responsibility to care for their souls, to assist for them as long as they are here to faithfully walk with the Lord. That's why we don't have a response. That's why we just, I know, I know, I know you've seen this before where the pastor will stand up popishly and open up the doors to the church and start adding members. He doesn't have the right to do that because he's obligating the membership to care for, for, for all of these people. And just from a practical standpoint, you may have some information about that brother that proves that he's not a believer that we don't know. That makes sense to you? So now I know traditionally many of us expect that only the pastors should be caring for their souls. However, this truth that the entire church is, listen, the entire body of Christ is responsible for both your physical and spiritual needs, okay? Not just the pastors, okay? So the deacons are primarily responsible for your physical needs and the pastors are responsible for your spiritual needs and both the pastors and the deacons, we carry out these responsibilities with your help and cooperation. We can't do what we do without you. Do you understand that? So what does that mean for us? First, it means this. If you're thinking about getting baptized, understand this, that once you get baptized, you are a member of the church specifically the member of the church that performed the baptism. Okay? So what I'm saying, this is what I'm saying. The church that baptized you made a public commitment to care for your soul and is affirming that you are in fact a believer. They are supposed to help you obey all that Jesus commanded and they are supposed to fellowship with you and help you submit to God. That's what they are promising to do when they baptize you. And no church should baptize you if you are not going to do that and they are not going to do what they're supposed to do. No church should baptize you. Amen? Amen? Secondly, church family, understand this. Every person we baptize, we're baptizing them into membership. Into the membership of the household of God. Okay, And you have a personal responsibility to care for that person's spiritual and physical well-being. You should help them. You should pray for them. You should help them put their sin to death. And you have an obligation to do these things. And so the pastors play a small role in it, but you, the church body, play a much larger role in the caring for one another's souls. It's only four of us. It's like a couple hundred of y'all. We can only do so much. 
We simply cannot do this alone. And lastly, church, we cannot and should not accept into membership through baptism anyone if we know that they have no desire to obey Christ or refuse to fellowship with his bride. You should not accept them into membership. So, in conclusion, remember our enthusiastic cowboy fan, Sarah, from the beginning of the sermon? In her zeal, she got confused, right? Because she thought that she could just, like, proclaim that I'm a cowboy, right? I can just go buy a Dak Prescott jersey, and I'm now I'm a cowboy, right? And she thought that that was enough to get her into the organization, but I want you to imagine a different scenario. Imagine that one day the Dallas Cowboy organization catches wind of Sarah's desire to join the organization. And instead of dismissing her, they decide to formally and publicly recognize her as a member of the organization. And they send her a jersey and a personalized letter and an invitation to meet the players and, to make, and they make a public commitment to help her make the game every Sunday. Can you picture the joy that Sarah would have if this kind of situation happened? So what's the difference? The difference is clear, family. She's not just a fan. Now, she is now acknowledged and accepted by the very organization that she claims to love. And so the church, like the Dallas Cowboy organization or any organization, plays a crucial role in formally recognizing and accepting members into its ranks. So just as Sarah's connection to the Cowboys was deeper because of the official recognition of the Cowboys, a person's walk with the Lord Jesus Christ is enriched when the church actively performs this three-part duty as it relates to baptism, to faithfully fulfill its responsibility to preach the gospel before baptism, to fulfill its role in baptism, which involves the responsibility to baptize those who fear God and discern who shouldn't be baptized, and to fulfill its ongoing responsibility for fellowship and teaching after baptism. So as we conclude our time here in Acts 10, 34 through 48, I want you to remember that the Lord has not left us in the dark about this subject of baptism, but that he has provided clarity to his church on this subject. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need your help, God. Because we don't always love your church the way that you do. And Lord, unless your Holy Spirit fills us, we will never love your bride and see her with the same eyes as you see her with God. So Lord, we pray for your help today. We pray, God, that you would press these truths on our heart. You would help us to see how wonderful it is to be part of your bride for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.